Hello, I'm June Reith, and you're listening to General Intellectiness. This time we're picking up part two of our discussion of Internet for the People by Ben Tarnoff. If you didn't catch the first part, I'd recommend pausing this episode, going back one, and starting from there. As always, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. get on to part two of the book, um, which is about the platforms where we move up the stack in chapter five, um, which gets a big chunk of this chapter is actually, um, yeah, it's, it's the kind of um, the ni- mid-90s, the kind of dot-com gold rush and the bubble and stuff, and like the attempt to privatize and kind of and to monetize activity in the application layer of the internet. Um, yeah. So not just making money off of service provision, but make money off of the activity that is happening on the internet. And the, the premier example here is actually eBay, because um, it's it's one of the companies that actually survives the dot-com crash and sort of pioneers kind of a lot of the techniques that would end up being, you know, useful for monetization. Like they were, they're kind of, they were weirdly ahead of their time on, um, on some of this stuff. Yeah, they they essentially invent like what it was later called the platform. Uh, eBay is kind of like the first platform uh, where it is like uh, Tarnoff argues is three elements: uh, the sovereign, that is the like the role of eBay as the disciplinarian who says who and uh, who can and cannot participate in the market on eBay and how they should behave. Uh, the middleman, that's like, you know, basically connecting the, the seller to the buyer uh, and vice versa. And then um, the maker of network effects, which is to say, like, you know, uh, the more people that are selling things on eBay, the more attractive it is as a buyer to use it and vice versa. And then also things like um, spinning PayPal out of eBay, uh, which was possible because um, there were so many people on that marketplace in the in the first mm-hmm. place, right? Yeah, it's um, the kind of exponential curve of like utility for the, the platform uh, based on uh, participation. So each each new each new user adds more than one unit's worth of, of utility to the network or whatever. And the the really like the key things he points out are that like you need to get the users to do most of the work on the platform to lower your labor costs as a platform holder. Uh, but you also need to do enough administration and like, you know, as you would put it, sort of like state-like functions um, to make sure it is a functional uh, marketplace. Um, So you need to kind of balance those two and it's difficult to do it, but like the back and forth there is essentially what makes the platform work. Um, Yeah. And there's some really interesting, um, points here about like um the you know ebay wanting to like um 
you know, fuse community and market, right? Like that, like, um, this is like a proper libertarian kind of fantasy, right? Like that the, the community is the market and the market is the community. Um, and that, um, you know, getting in the middle of all of that was highly lucrative. Um, but there, there was a, there was a kind of interesting point about like, um, that initially they kind of wanted the community market hybrid to be self-regulating, but then did have to step in with like dispute resolution sort of stuff that like it's it, it, the, the sovereign couldn't be absent entirely, which is kind of contrary to the libertarian myth, but is actually totally copacetic with how libertarianism plays out um, when it's not just a fucking weird fantasy. Yeah, like the the guy who created uh, Omidyar, uh, he was a libertarian, and he was like against the commercialization of the internet, um, but only because it was kind of like too tacky and top down what he really wanted was to like take the early activity and creativity of the internet and like funnel that into um more horizontal market transactions Mm -hmm. uh yeah yeah that stuff is crucial right because like this is um it's the, the humanization of the internet, and it's, uh, it's, it's uh, the hijacking of human interactions, but it's also like that, um, similar to what I was saying about email being the the killer app for the, the, the early internet, like, it, 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 like the internet ends up being a way for people to interact with each other, and rather than primarily a way for nuclear missile silos to coordinate action, you know, like, um, it, it's, it's much more of a human place, um, and that's, I mean, it's part of, I mean, it's, it's a thing Turnoff raises a couple of times, right? Like this transition from the internet as a protocol to the internet as a place where human beings do things. They sell and buy and flirt and argue and, you know, send each other death threats and shit like that. You know, all those lovely human things that we do um, are the, that's, a, that's the real heart and soul of all this stuff, not the um, kind of military coordination system that it was supposed to be. Let's see what we got. Um, I think we might have covered a lot of that chapter, actually. Yeah. Online malls, the platforms. I guess this is where he kind of, um, well, he's already taken objection to the, them being, you know, platforms, because platform is such a kind of neutral term, and it kind of suggests that, like, oh, we're just facilitating things, you know, we're just a, a fun little a fun little flat surface on which you can stand. Um, in this, uh, as the title, the title of the chapter suggests, uh, online malls, these are, like, that's a much better analogy for what this is all about. It's privately owned public space. Um, I didn't, I, I, I was not aware of the um, kind of weird uh, quasi-socialist. The socialist origins of malls. I know, like who the fuck knows about this? This is so weird. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I did know about that like from years ago reading about it, but it is, uh, it is interesting. Like it is interesting how Sort of depending on the country, you see a little bit more or less of this sort of thing. So, like, um, you know, the, the idea behind malls originally was to uh, kind of be a, like a, a response to, like, strip malls or sort of, like, very car-centric, like, atomized um, marketplaces. Um and to be these like enclosed public spaces that would mimic the activity and values of a European town square, right? Um, 
And yeah, like in some, like in Japan, for example, like you'll always have sort of like community performances and like music events and little happening things that are going on in the mall uh, in a way that sort of is like reminiscent of what the original idea was behind malls. Um, whereas I feel like in Canada, you see it sometimes, but almost always it's just like, no, nah, it's just a place. It's just a place for shops to set up and for goods to be sold. Like there's, there's very little of that idea of the town square in it, except for, um, in like kind of the old hangout culture that existed in the nineties in the mall or whatever, um, that was very improvised, but like, you know, the original creator of malls, I forget what his name was, but his, his sort of theory was you'd have like libraries in there and stuff like, you know, kind of like more, uh, non-profit oriented things existing in the mall space alongside the uh, marketplace. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty amazing. Uh, Cause like I, that's, uh, by the time we come along, like all of that shit's gone, you know, <laughs> like completely. And it's, it's just this, the, uh, the shopping mall is this cold machinic sort of place that. Um, yeah. It's just whenever I go to a country and I look at the mall culture to whatever extent it exists, like I, um, I'm, I'm always reading it from like the lens of like, how much does this match up with the original conception, of, like the socialist conception of balls? Um, cause I just read that like years and years ago and I was always like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. And it's also interesting, like in Europe, like for example, in Utrecht where, you know, I work sometimes, uh, they've built a mall in the town square. <laughs> There's like a giant mall in there. And so it's like very much like, I don't know, the serpent eating its tail, like the original referent for what this was supposed to be is turned into the thing that was imitating it in the first place. Um, and, 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 and people, people generally hate it, of course, um, as being like this, like, you know, American intrusion into, uh, their, 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 their public space. Yeah. Jesus, do you think Baudrillard would have a heart attack if he was still around? <laughs> that kind of shit. <laughs> just fucking... <laughs> no, I think he would just be like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, probably. He probably saw that coming a long way you off. Know, like, <laughs> uh, it's all, all going according to plan. <laughs> I guess that that does fit um, much much better with them, um, but yeah. So like the, these internet platforms are really basically online malls, right? Like that. It's it's very like, oh, come hang out here and do things and transact and hang around. And also, we control everything and we can see everything you do, um, because you know, on the uh, like in a mall, you can walk around and it's not like they have sensors in the fucking floor plates or anything, you know. But the the nature of the internet is that like there's metrics and data collected fucking everywhere because you. You can't traverse any of it without, without, without giving that signal. Yeah, I mean, I feel like pre-internet-ish time, you had like um, uh, sort of more digitized inventory systems that came into malls, which is like the closest thing you got to that kind of tracking. But like pretty much anything you find in a mall that fits that 
like surveillance capitalism model uh, is a thing that's been like backported from the online marketplace to the uh, brick and mortar mall uh, system. It's like it, it's been innovated in online marketplaces and then brought to the mall uh, as opposed to like springing up. There. Yeah. That this is a notion of like the data rent and like the data as a kind of raw resource that these things collect and and operate on, um, which we um, we we touched on with um, what was Cernishek's book called? Uh, Platform capitalism, that's the one, um, which is cited here as well. So it's all very kind of similar to um, to what's said in that book. Um, that it's all about the data and that like. So, like, one of, one of the big problems with, like, um, say, if you think of, like, the, the dot-com crash, like, you had, like, pets.com and shit like that, where the business model was, we're going to be a pet food store, but just on the internet, which is, like, it's just mail-order pet food, but going through a web browser. Like, it's not it's not really a novel kind of thing, right? Um, the thing they didn't get, that that eBay and Google and all these places eventually got, that they, they figured out the, the, the business model that would actually work on the internet was to get in the middle of all that kind of stuff and and siphon up the data and and use that as a as an additional raw resource um that's why you know ebay and google and etc and amazon would stick around you know uh, but pets.com hit the hit the skids um um that does bring us to google um basically yeah that's kind of the story of it is that like um they make a search engine and eventually start using, like, start using um, data on user behavior to feed back into, like, uh, both optimizing the results in the search engine and selling ads, crucially. Um, and then you, you can see the feedback loop forming there uh, that, um, that starts to tighten over time. And, 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 like, the algorithmic sorting of ad preferences is, like, because initially the founders of Google are kind of, like, against using ads um because they they don't like ads uh but then when they figure out a way through like what is it adwords the adwords system to kind of like auction off ads in a way that will make them more relevant to the viewer uh based on like their their search algorithm um, that's when they're like, well, I guess it's still, you know, kind of promote, like providing some kind of value to the, the viewer as opposed to the just sort of like, you know, uh, fire hose blasting of advertising, uh, that was like indiscriminate and common on both television and, uh, and online at that time. Um, you can see the um, the wonderful synthesis of, of all those different tendencies, right? Like being a sovereign who gets to set the rules, um, being a market maker in between the um, consumers and the ad sellers, or the advertisers, I guess, and then having the network effects because the, the, the whole system becomes more valuable with more users. And I guess if, if users feel that the, I don't know, that the, the ads on Google are less obtrusive or are higher quality or whatever, it's less odious than the stuff they see on Yahoo or whatever, they'll go there. And then also the advertisers will go there. It's all this kind of multidimensional feedback loop um, that adds up to a lot of money for, for Google. Um, but the, 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 the grease at the heart of it all is the data. That's the kind of lubricant and the raw, raw material that makes all that possible. Without the... Yeah, it's the data and knowing how to work the data, mm -hmm. right? Right. The, um, 
And that's, that's why they get good at machine learning, is because that's how you calculate the quality scores for ads and for user behavior and get all that stuff matched up. Um, yeah, and it's also how, like, the algorithm becomes... It's not, like, completely out of human control, but it is, like, more and more an inhuman force that structures human behavior uh, in, in, a, in a very, like, capital logic kind of way. Like, obviously, the, the algorithms are not, like, intrinsically capitalistic, like, ranking search results in a way so that the results are relevant to the user is something that you would probably want to do in any mode of production. Uh, I mean, unless you were like, I don't know, a librarian who really wanted to protect your position. And so you're like, well, I'm just going to make the search algorithm useless. So then they have to come to me. But um, generally speaking, that that's a, that's, that's just a simple instrumental logic. Um, but uh, like, I think he mentions later in the book that these, these algorithms obviously take on the prejudices of the ca uh, of of the society within the, which they are created and because the whole google system is geared towards profit making for google and for the ad purchasers to some extent at least right like it's very unclear how much the advertising actually works for them but at least they think that it's about it is relevant to their profit making plans um and that means that the the algorithm over iterations gets tuned more and more towards capitalistic aims um and 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 it began with sort of data structures that were already biased by the capitalist society within which they existed absolutely right and um we, we, we kind of get a, a section on Facebook then and social media and how all that same stuff applies there with um, the, you know, algorithmic kind of drive of engagement um, and it's, it's structuring human behavior towards uh, capitalist ends also. Um, and the, 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 uh, the chapter does then close on a, um, the, the, the like a subprime attention crisis, the like kind of looming threat that actually all this advertising shit is actually much less effective than it than it's uh, supposed to be, and that you know Google and Facebook make a lot of money because they're the guys selling the pickaxes in the gold rush. You know, um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, isn't that just like a perpetual problem with advertising? Like that, like everybody kind of knows it's like a massive social waste of resources. Uh, but at the same time, kind of knows that, like, if you don't advertise at all, you're screwed. You know, it's 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 that weird gray area between like this is useless and this is necessary, mm -hmm. if not that useful. Well, it's it's a it, that it's one of the classic examples of a red queen problem. And like for for the for the listeners, like um, it's uh, this is a thing that comes from evolutionary biology, but like gets applied to um, capitalist stuff as well, where. In, uh, in Alice in Wonderland, the, the Red Queen says something along the lines of, you have to run as fast as you can to stay in place, and you have to run twice as fast as that to actually go anywhere. And in evolutionary biology, this is the concept that organisms or species have to evolve at, at a minimum to catch up with where everyone else is, because everyone else is evolving to catch up with where everyone else is. So there's, there's a certain amount of waste, sort of wasted energy on just staying in the same place, basically, like just maintaining stasis. 
And then if you actually want to evolve wings or sharp teeth or something, that takes even more energy. And so, yeah, in advertising, it's it's a Red Queen problem where you, you're kind of mandated to spend a certain amount of money on advertising, even if you know it doesn't really pay off, but it's just to keep up with the Joneses at a minimum. And then if you actually want the advertising to be effective, you have to spend twice as much. Um, so it's a colossal amount of bloat and, and just useless crap that actually doesn't really do anything. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those things where it's like, even in the socialism, you would expect there to be some kind of advertising, like, just because you need to, like, like presumably you want people to get the things that you have to provide, but probably wouldn't have this, like, arms race characteristic to it that you get in capitalism, where it's just, like, this massive, massive social waste. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Um, speaking of social waste, um, Chapter 7, Elastic Empires, where we get to talk about e-commerce. Um, big chunk of this is about Amazon, basically. Um, yeah, it's about, like, AWS... And it's about Amazon Marketplace, right? Yeah, right. Because like Amazon starts out as just a bookshop, and it's like, well, it's mail order books, but through a web browser. Who gives a shit? Like, and um, they they kind of um, they have a really hard time initially because like they uh, margins are really thin, and in part because they they own their own infrastructure, like um, you know the distribution centers and stuff like that. It's it's not like eBay. Yeah, they have warehouses. Yeah, whereas e eBay just farms all that out to the users. It's like you you sort out the shipping, whatever. We don't give a shit. Um, but like Amazon is actually actually doing it. Um, but their their fortunes kind of turn around a bit later when they kind of um, become a data company. Um, you know, they, they start doing this data trick and then specifically when they do the like market platform thing where they get in the middle of like they, they allow other sellers to sell on Amazon and then they get in the middle of that stuff uh, and harvest the data from those transactions yeah they can they can let let their marketplace um, sellers come in start selling something assume the upfront costs and then they just cherry pick the things that are selling well and copy what it is about them that's appealing and then undercut the people who were originally selling them. It's a double win because they, they get to take a slice of something somebody else is sorting out, right? Like and they, they um and sometimes they even get to like they'll they'll sell you the warehouse space for the inventory and stuff like that. And like it's 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 um it's it's that getting in the middle dynamic. Um, and the network effect, effects are in play, and the sovereign stuff is in play because they get to set the rules. Um, and then, yeah, the ult the yeah, they can always just like totally screw you because they are the sovereign over the the quote unquote platform. And the uh, the copycat stuff is is crucial there. Um, and then, like, I think their their fortunes really turn around when they uh, get into AWS, Amazon Web Services, where they basically. Um, they, they kind of, there, there's this push within Amazon to rationalize its IT infrastructure uh, to be more kind of like uh, service platform oriented. So that like, you know, if you're, if you're developing internal systems for, uh, for Amazon, you'll be deploying them onto its own internal infrastructure that's like fully managed and stuff. And it's all kind of slick and greasy. And the, there's less like duplication of infrastructure. There's, there's one way to deploy stuff within Amazon, basically. And there's like, um, it's all... You know, and then you have, I guess, infrastructure teams who are running that sort of stuff. And then it occurs to them, why not just sell this? You know, we'll just sell on-demand computation. 
in the same way that we, we sell it internally, we just, it's a bookkeeping exercise for us, but we could sell it publicly. Um, and this, this is a big feature of the internet and of like software development these days, is this like the cloud, uh, on-demand computing from a magic machine somewhere. Yeah, hundred percent. And like, it's interesting, like he mentions that sort of like in the sixties when the internet was kind of like in its total infancy, uh, there were like people who envisioned this on-demand computation being part of what the internet would become. Uh, and it wasn't until AWS that it actually existed. Mm -hmm. We're very much back to the kind of like mainframe era where you have like thin clients, like you have dumb terminals more or less, and then all the smarts live in a big machine somewhere. Um, I guess also like um, with AWS, they've managed to kind of resell their um, their data infrastructure so that like a big part of um, AWS service is data storage and like machine learning as a service and that sort of stuff. So um, they it's not only like they, they get to be a data business in themselves, but then they get to take a slice of every other data business in the world, <laughs> which is it's a hell of a fucking position to be in. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, like, you do have, like, competitors, like Azure or whatever, but AWS is the biggest game in town. Um, there's a section then on, basically, like, Internet of Things and uh, the diffusion of the Internet through, uh, I guess, especially through mobile computing, um, through mobile networks and, uh, you know, smart fucking clocks and all this other horseshit that we have to put up with these days. Um, oh, it's horrifying. Like, what are they saying? It's, like, by such a, such a date, like half of the computers in the world are going to be Internet of Things devices. Like, oh my god, just can you imagine the, just the, the security disaster implied by that? Like, like just, oh, just this, like, cr horrific, creaking, like, kind of, like, undead army of machines that is... It's just like, it's running like Java 2 and, you know, it's like everything is like, you can only access it by way of like a proprietary app that's written in COBOL or something. Like, it's like just, <laughs> it's so horrible. <laughs> like, like, I mean, like, you know, like capitalism is just, it's just inherited capitalism to produce like tremendous amounts of waste. But there's just something about Internet of Things where it's sort of like, it's like half living that makes it even more like disgusting and abhorrent than the usual forms of capitalistic waste. Yeah, right. Because the um, the kind of framing here is all like the, the, the diffusion of the Internet through through material reality, like a fucking mold. You know, it's just everywhere and you can't get rid of it. Um, it's fluid. It's ubiquitous and diffuse like like black mold is, you know, Um Horrible. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I hate that shit. I want to get it out of my house, you know. Well, I try to. I try to make sure I don't buy anything with Internet of Things. Oh God, no! Like that. That shit is forbidden. Features, but, but like, you know, eventually it's just going to become overwhelming, and every fucking thing's going to have it in it, and it's like. There's no good reason for any of this to exist. Uh, well, yeah, all, all that kind of shit is forbidden in this house, but, like, we're, we we might need a new TV in the next couple of years. And I was like, I, I don't know where the fuck I'm going to get, like, a dumb TV anymore, you know? Um, oh, well, yeah, I, I think, like, the only thing you can do is, like, buy, like, a PC, like, one of those, like, PC monitors that's, like, enormous. And then it, it, it's kind of, like, 
headless. Like it doesn't it doesn't have any compute functions on it. That's gonna have to be it, you know. Just got a huge TV, uh, huge computer to monitor. Um, Don't worry, they'll add a bunch of crap to that too soon. Yeah, they'll enough. figure out how to fucking do that exactly. Um, this shit sucks. Um, it, the chapter then kind of takes a bit of a turn towards Uber and the algorithmic management. Yeah, which which basically tries to take like the AWS idea of like provision on demand and use that model for labor. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Um, they kind of get there by a segue from um, like a, actually going back to the military and like the the first use of um, basically of algorithm algorithmic management when the military finally did decide to use computers to do um, like what was it packing planning or whatever for like the load load planning for like uh, deployments. The eighteenth airborne, I think it was like they basically it's like a, a I guess a regiment that could deploy to anywhere in the world. And they used to have to like, you know, sort of like you would in like a video game or something. Like you come up with your loadout that you're going to bring onto the mission, but they used to have to like resident evil Two, whatever in the inventory. Yeah. Yeah. They used to have to do it all by hand. And then the DARPA nerds came in and were like, well, actually, uh, and, and came up with an automated system that would just like spit out a solution for, the loadout they needed, and so that would reduce their deployment time a lot. Yeah, which is, it's a nice parlor trick. They, they kind of solved the knapsack problem, and uh, this was the first instance of a human being being told what to do by a computer. It's it's algorithmic management from here on out, you know. Um, which was finally the kind of realization of DARPA's initial kind of uh, desire for, like, the, the battlefield to be managed by computers, you know. Um, but it, instead of, you know, DARPA taking this up, it's Uber that does this um, for, like, uh, bossing people around via computer. Yeah, just um, all the regulatory and algorithmic and UI ways that they they try to make management as impenetrable and exploitative as possible. Yeah, I kind of loved how they tied this all in with um, it's like Uber as an experience for the drivers and the passengers, right? Like as has this has this dystopian elements, but then they also tied into this um, fissured workplace concept and like outsourcing. And discipline at a distance, and like the the problems, that like so the, like there, there are related problems here of like how does Uber direct the the activity of drivers, um in this dis, dis, detached algorithmic kind of way, but also how does it like um how do it and similar firms direct the activity of employees in these detached ways like through outsourcing and so on like them. And algorithmic algorithmic management is the common ground there. Yeah, it's like how do you how do you atomize workers as much as possible, but still coordinate their activities, right? Yes, right. And that's that's a general problem that is solved by this algorithmic management. Um, and this is dark stuff. This, this is the kind of shit that, like, Norbert Wiener was afraid of in, in writing The Human Use of Human Beings. Like, this is the kind of nightmare version of, like, cybernetics as a tool of capital. Yeah, exactly. Like, they open with the story about, like, the cabbie in New York who, like sees his whole like livelihood disappear tries to fight it fails um and ends up killing himself uh like you know after having sort of written in uh trade journals uh regularly about this problem um and i I remember there's actually even an episode of uh the old comedy show uh nathan for you 
um, which is, uh, it was like a show where Nathan Fielder, the the comedian, like, tries to, like, quote unquote, help uh, small business people with um, ridiculous ideas. Um, but the, there's one episode where he, he finds a, you know, a, a, a taxi driver in LA, uh, who is being screwed by Uber, um, mm. and like tries to organize like a covert op to fight Uber. But then by the time <laughs> he's, he's got it organized, the driver is already working for Uber. <laughs> oh, Jesus. It's, it's just oh, no. like, oh, God. <laughs> Horrible. Uh, yeah, he joined the uh, the human cloud. Um, it's a wonderful little fucking phrase um, that they have here. Oh, it's it's so it's it's so gross. Like, I mean, it, it goes back to like that episode of like writing for delivery we did, right? But but it's it's just this shit is is so disgusting. I'm I'm glad that like in Calgary, like speaking of sort of like co op relevant stuff. Uh, we do have like a quite a large co-op like consumer co-op in in Calgary which is like to some extent also a producer co-op um and they do like uh grocery stores um and and so as of this year they're actually doing grocery delivery so you can get the service that Instacart provides without having to uh, buy into the horrible worker exploitation implied by Instacart. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, that's that is that is a very nice thing to have thanks to co-ops, uh, because I'm absolutely certain there's no way we'd get anything like that in, in the city with, if it weren't for the co-op. Yeah. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the nightmarish part of all this is that like, it's, um, directed by the inhuman imperatives of capital, but like, I don't know, like you, you kind of think of like, I don't know, it's quite, it's quite a, quite an achievement, right, to be able to, like, coordinate human labor with low latency and, like, all that kind of stuff, but it's like, oh, but then it's a nightmare because it's fucking capital, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, if it's just a better dispatch system you're talking about, that's nice. If it's, if it's a dispatch system that is also simultaneously, like, a nightmarish, uh, labor discipline demon, uh, then it's not so cool. <laughs> No, absolutely right. Um, uh, there's a bit of a section then about like um, the kind of remarkable lack of profitability in these kind of platforms, and especially in Uber, and how this is um, kind of getting into like the, the pathologies of VC funding, and like how there's this kind of like psychotic belief that like any amount of investment today is worth it because the the data genie will pay off later, right? Like it'll just be self-driving cars or AI or whatever will come out and it'll, it'll, it's a Pascal's mugging, right? Like there's an infinite utility in the future. And so you can uh, pour all the money in today. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's, there's sort of like, that's the, the pull factor. And then the push factor is the falling rate of profit where like the profitable investments becomes more and more and more restricted. And so then you end up making these like, long shot bets through VCs, um, on companies like Uber. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, because the rate of return on everything else is in the shitter. Um, yeah, and I, uh, there's... Uh, Turnoff kind of frames it quite nicely here with, like, um, privatization going through these, like, three phases of, like, ascendant, triumphant, and baroque, right? Like, where the, the ascendant phase is the privatization of the pipes, the triumphant phase is the privatization of data, and then this baroque phase is uh, typified by Uber as, like, lunatic financialization and just, like, um, market psychosis. Yeah, it's like the... I mean, I don't totally agree with the model, because, like, the sort of absurd enthusiasm uh the mania that's associated with silicon valley is something that's kind of like constantly there uh you know into like the dot-com period and then you have like um even like at sort of the height of silicon valley's powers there's a lot of people saying like this stuff is overvalued blah 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 um and then it gets like you know, even more ridiculous with these, um, uh, just trying to appify every labor process conceivable, um, uh, apps, but like, there's something to it, right? Like, I think there's already, there's always like a broke tendency in Silicon Valley or in capitalism in general, but especially in, in tech. Um, uh, but yeah, maybe, it's only the success of Google and Facebook that have justified or and of Amazon that have justified the extremely long shot bets that are being made on things like Uber, where it's like, you know, they, they lied for however many years about like, Oh, you know, uh, automated vehicles just around the corner. That'll make us profitable. Um, yeah, it's just total snake oil. Yeah, I mean that—that's the thing that maybe marks this the, this later period of it just being so much more naked than before. Um, but again, you're you're right; it's always been there. It's always been a shit show. Um, uh, chapter eight uh, is titled "Inclusive Predators," um, where yeah, like we really get into the, like the cruelty and all of its effects of these uh, these platforms, um, and that. Like, this is where um, Turnoff really goes into, like, um, these internet companies as not just being tech companies. They're, they're political machines, and they're money machines, and they're disciplinarian machines, and they're inequality machines. Um, and all these bits all these bits are linked up. Like, they're, they're lobbying like hell to get these kinds of power and to get these kinds of investments and stuff. And that these are, these are entanglements, right? Like, these, each of these particular machines, like Google, Amazon, Facebook and stuff, has a particular combination of, like, political and legal and financial forces, forces, like, swirling around it. Um, and that gives it its particular character. Um, so, like, they all, they all share these common kind of, like, uh, common traits and tendencies that we've identified, but they all end up being a little bit different each, each time. Um, but the in, the inequality is one of those real like being an inequality machine is kind of one of those bedrock kind of um, uh, properties that these things have right that that's that's what they do um, one of the ways one of the ways they do this is by um, they, they 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 jilt the risk reward sort of curve like they externalize their risks like risks are pushed away and downwards whilst rewards are pulled in and upwards so like the um, the example of like Uber and taxi drivers, like all of the all of the rewards are pulled into Uber, but all of the risks and all the shittiness is pushed outwards onto taxi drivers who are getting fucked over um, by their livelihoods being fucked up with this stuff. Yeah, uh, it's it's like what 
uh, they call like pre- uh, sorry uh, predatory inclusion. Um, you get it's called like the logic organization and technique of including marginalized consumer citizens into ostensibly democratizing mobility schemes on extractive terms, which is like, you know, basically just the capitalist labor process. But like, nevertheless, you kind of see how like Uber first destroys the taxi, uh, the, the taxi drivers as like independent, um, kind of like guild operators and then once they've been proletarianized includes them in the uber system um and 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 like pro- produces greater inequality through their inclusion um yeah i guess the other leg of that is like um so there's a there's a deliberate de- um demolition of your your livelihood and then you get sucked in but then the other side of it is that like um you know uh, racialized workers or women or whatever are just kind of preyed upon directly that like if you're if you're somebody who's in a very precarious situation you can make a bit of money as a gig worker and that sucks you in or um the example given here is yeah and and that gives you like they they are they are mobilized as the army to destroy the entrenched workers right (laughs) who are in relatively more privileged positions yeah it's it's the two strokes of the engine and I, i kind of like the um the way it's put here that like uh women kept at home by caregiving responsibilities can make money doing digital piecework while the baby sleeps um that's that's your real that's your predatory inclusion yeah just like truly truly classic like putting out system like ancient ancient capitalism labor process stuff uh in in modern terms and a lot of this like gig economy app stuff is of that sort like a lot of it is like reintroducing antiquated forms of labor processes into contemporary capitalism with the disciplinary apparatus of the app on top of it right so like Mm-hmm. It's like it's all the shit that um all the shit that Marx rants about in, in Capital Volume One, like of the piecework and the fucking horrible conditions and all this kind of shit, and it's just back. It's 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 just here, you know. Yeah, like like for example, like you know, if you are a uh, delivery driver, right? Like like that kind of like extremely uh low capital intensity um delivery service uh is like something that you would associate more with like um sort of like the late 19th century early 20th century right like you know highly deprofessionalized um low capital intensity very labor intensive very low paying um it's it's kind of more like something you would expect from like coolie labor or you know like uh menials or this kind of thing like you know back in the day when they would be like like when the british would be like you know what why could i like why would i possibly want a washing machine i have servants to do that right like it's it's just it's it's like putting a very fancy veneer on top of like 
some of the most primitive forms of capitalist labor. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like, do you think we're going to get, um, do you think we're going to get Uber for chimney sweeps anytime soon? You know, you know, like I bet you could hire someone on, uh, what is it? Uh, task rabbit to do a chimney sweeping for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, um, this kind of cool section then with, um, like the way this all this stuff just like replicates and remasters uh, inequalities and oppressions, right? That like there was this kind of fantasy of um, the internet being this like clean place that had you know n none of the horrible shit from the outside world was here. It's like this wonderful little utopia, but really no, it's just it's replicated and um, as as they put it here, like remastered the kind of thing, right? Where it's um, you, you've got racism in HD now, right? Like, you know, it, it used to be analog tape and now it's digital, you know, this kind of shit. Um, and it's, it's transcribed into the new kind of, uh, into the new medium. Yeah, so yeah, you get like um, racist, racist exclusions that pre-existed these algorithms just being encoded into the algorithms. Um, and then like, therefore, because like the algorithms are optimizing, like uh, being intensified. Absolutely. Um, that then segues into, um, I guess, a treatment of like the far right and their presence on the internet um, and how they've been, uh, as the section is titled, innovation opportunists. Um, and they, they've really made a, you know, good go of it on the internet. Like they've um, even like, what's said here is like David Duke, um, recognized immediately the potential for the internet. It's like, holy shit, we got to get on there, you know? And they've, they've been, um, you know, you got to hand it them. They've been pretty savvy about getting on the trends for like new media types. You know, they were the, they, they pioneered the use of uh, talk radio and shit like that. And um, I'm sure they were there for the first newspapers. Um, Cable television, talk radio. Um, yeah. The internet, obviously back in the day, radio itself, like it's, it's, yeah, it's just like uh, they will use it for propaganda uh, uh, as much, if not more, than the left, and they they are able to do so to a greater extent. Like the more, like the more the the specific medium is capital intensive uh, or has a certain barrier to entry the more they're able to exploit it, right? So, like, you have, like, cable where, like, there is no corresponding left-wing response to, like, Fox News. Like, that... Like, because it's, like, literally impossible to put something like that together with the buy-in costs... Uh, that are associated with it. Like people will say, like, "Oh, but what about CNBC?" But that's all like lip mm -hmm. shit. Like that is that is not. <laughs> that's not. That's that not is not left stuff. Like it is, it is. It is. It is. It is. Is definitely more centrist than anything else. Like they just they 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 play opposition to Fox News, but that's just like the sort of dynamic of the language game they're engaged in. It's not to say that they are like. <laughs> that far on the political spectrum from no, them. No, definitely not. Um, and yeah, it's, um, I think they're being, they're, the, the far right having more money behind them is definitely a huge factor. But um, like on, on the internet as well, you also just kind of get the impression they've just been much more savvy actors and are better at playing people and better at like 
I get better at playing the game than we are for some reason. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hard to say because like like if you're in the left milieu, you just don't see the right milieu. So like the extent to which that's like fragmented or ineffective or whatever, like we don't really have a very clear sense of that. Um, whereas our own problems and, you know, uh, conflicts and whatever are very obvious to us. So I think it's like, like, I definitely wouldn't say the left has been like totally ineffective in using these, these, these platforms or, or types of media. It's just, um, the thing that's striking about the right is that like, they obviously have like less numbers but are able to be quite effective for their small numbers yeah they're, um, they're quite clever and deliberate about the way the way they go about things i guess um that's it they strike me as savvy but then again they have money as well and like there's a certain resonance between yeah it's like they can hire whatever it is like the uh uh the palantir palantir yeah 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 they get higher Palantir. The left cannot hire Palantir. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, oh, dear. Um, but I guess there's also a certain kind of resonance between, you know, the kind of um, right radicals who are, you know, ultimately it's a project of defending hierarchy and, like, a resonance with, like, the hierarchy machines that are these platforms. Um, and so they're, they're a kind of natural fit in many ways. Um uh, it they kind of fit hand in glove in a way that, um, yeah, we're we're not quite so much of a fit. Um, I wonder is that why um, like podcasts are a really left wing thing, and then YouTube is a fucking right wing hellscape. Is that why that is? Because like you know, visual stuff is more capital intensive, and podcasts are cheap as shit. I mean, I don't know if that's like actually like like I don't know what the numbers are because like BreadTube is a thing, right? But. I don't know what the relative numbers are. Like, I think they must be like quite heavily weighted towards the right. Um, but I'm not sure. It's, it's just, yeah, I, I don't really feel like the left wing YouTubers, like their production quality is super low or anything like that. Um, it's just, yeah, I would say, yeah, that, that it's certainly easier to get into the left-wing podcast game as far as, like, skills necessary to, like, production skills necessary to make a go of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a nice kind of section then um, uh, titled Beyond the Bubble in which um, Tarnoff kind of sets up the, like, a sort of popular narrative of how this whole right-wing disinformation shit goes, where it's like, oh, well, there's loads of disinformation brainwashing people, and that leads to polarization. There's, like, the Russians are involved somehow, and then there's echo chambers, and then that breeds extremism. And this is just too linear an explanation, and it's um, it's it's too kind of... too comfortable. And he kind of takes to... More explaining these things as, like, a complex ecosystem, right? That, like, the 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 platforms are in an ecosystem alongside right-wing organizations and other forms of media and general kind of reactionary tendencies among people. And there's a kind of complex intera interaction between all these kind of things. And there's, 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 there's resonance and kind of symbiotic relationships there, but there's also tension and there's kind of conflict in that ecosystem as well. 
Yeah, I think the the main statistic he points to is that like polarization was actually more common among demographics that had very low internet usage than ones that had high internet usage. Um, presumably, like in the U.S., so it's like, yeah, that the internet is not is like clearly not the causal factor in producing um, polarization. Uh, and the other thing he points to is that, like, you know, these, like, sort of ethnographic studies that have been done about 4chan, where they're like, well, yeah, like, it is it is right-wing that 4chan, uh, but they do disagree with each other a lot. So the echo chamber hypothesis is, like, really not confirmed by the evidence. Um, it's like, like, yes, they are, they are, they're politically aligned, but they're not an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you, you go to 4chan and you see them arguing over whether Serbians or um, Chechens are the master race or whatever. You know, it's like they, it's, they're, they're on the same page in some way, but it's hyper-fragmented, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or like, is, is, is Trump... Uh, based or is Trump uh, <laughs> a useful idiot or is Trump uh, an any enemy of the Aryan race? You know, like these kinds of important strategic questions that come up. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, the, the, the right is a shit show also, but like it's a shit show with money and, and some, some degree of power. Um, um, there's also kind of a like um, gesture to like diversity of tactics and stuff as well amongst that kind of milieu. But um, I think I, I generally kind of appreciated the kind of eco- ecological like assemblage take on this sort of stuff. That it's a um, it's a complex system, and you kind of you have to treat it as non-linear. That like it's it's not just the case that like the right-wing media migrated onto the platforms and made them bad, or that like the 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 the, the causal flows are kind of multi-directional here. Yeah, I mean, I think there is, like, there's absolutely something to these platforms being, like, outrage engines because of uh, promoting engagement, and engagement most strongly being encouraged by outrage, um, which is bad, Uh, (laughs) but that is not the same thing as saying it's an echo chamber, because you could be, you could be... uh, like quite outraged, like, you know, acting from a position of, uh, like sort of anger, um, and just like be at each other's throats as much as you could be like against, you know, the enemy in the, the, whatever it is like the 10 minutes hate or something in Orwell. Right. Like it is, it is, it, it doesn't necessarily follow just because, there's a predisposition towards outrage that um, there's also a predisposition towards intellectual homogeneity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the outrage thing, outrage generating clicks is really just that, like, the, you know, f- Facebook or whatever is optimizing for engagement, but that kind of only works so long as they don't, like, alienate advertisers and stuff like that. So there is a tension. So, like, so much as, like, Facebook is sucking up to the Republicans, they're also, like, trying to... Well, it's 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 fortunate that on the left we don't actually do anything when we get outraged, so um, uh, they never really have to worry about that problem <laughs> yeah, with us. They're, they're not trying to do something to us, you know. It's um, 
but we just get very angry. Yeah, we see about it. Uh, um, but like, so like, Facebook is trying to suck is like sucking up to the Republicans, trying to you know get favorable conditions for them to operate in, but also. They can't afford to alienate advertisers by having too much white supremacy stuff on there. So there's there's tension, you know, it's not just a one-way thing. Yeah, he, he, he describes how it's sort of like an optimization problem where you want to be like, you want to encourage like the maximum possible amount of outrage and controversy without offending your, uh, your uh, big bourgeois advertisers uh, who are going to get upset with you and pull your your like you know pull your funding or the government's going to come in and give you a slap mm-hmm. on the wrist um yeah it's um it's a complex set of feedback loops and there are competing pressures within them it's you know it's just good cybernetics really um yeah and uh the, the last thing he mentions is that like yeah the russia stuff it's like there's no like the data doesn't suggest that the the russians had like any appreciable effect in the the um disinformation and uh agitprop stuff they were promoting and to the extent they did have an effect it was just bandwagoning with like right-wing memes and narratives that were already being put out by the u.s right um so it's like yeah like they were there but they definitely were not the uh the powerhouse that they were made out to be um chapter nine i think is the last real chapter uh toward the forest um which kind of gets into like the tech lash and kind of like the um, general approaches to how to deal with this. Um, the two major tendencies are identified, um, either like reform the internet through new regulations or uh, reform it through more competition, like breaking up the monopolies and stuff like that. But then, you know, the, the third alternative that's proposed is just deprivatize the whole fucking thing um, and democratize the whole thing, um, which, yeah, thumbs up on the last one, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like there are the, uh, there's like the sort of like Elizabeth Warren style uh, alternatives that are being promoted in terms of like, oh, we need to like, you know, break, like bust the trusts and like create like baby Facebooks and stuff uh, to promote competition. Um, and then he's like, yeah, but what if competition is even Yeah, worse? what if competition is bad, actually, you know? Competition is the problem. This is the yeah. thing. More competition is not what you want. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then, um, yeah, it's sort of on that note, like me- mentioning, like, he, he, he kind of draws on, like, the abo- pr- like prison abolitionist literature. Uh, it, it, yeah, in terms of, like, sort of imagining alternatives, thinking, like, ecologically about how they feed into each other instead of just, like, making red Facebook. Um, And then, yeah, has this point that, like, a key abolitionist insight is that failures of imagination produce practical failures, which is, you know, the big big thing that I am always working on for work at the university. So I appreciate that point. Yeah, I re- I really liked this um, tying in with the prison abolition stuff, like the, the the need for like new architectures of like um like you you have to imagine because like if you if you're gonna get rid of prisons, it's like you have to really imagine okay what kind of a world would that be and what other kind of changes would have to happen 
it's not just having like have a better prison or have a different prison it's like no if, if they're gone then like how do you how do you re- rehabilitate people how do you support people how do you yada, yada you know and it goes on and on and on and it fuels this kind of imagine imagining of like what that would actually be like and that's so much more productive than just like uh let's nationalize facebook or whatever yeah and then we have uh um like a discussion about uh interventions in platforms as investments in care um because like all of this like uh, so-called like ghost work or uh uh what do you call it like um like disconnected uh work that's done by uh oppressed people in like off-site from the big tech tech hubs in terms of like content moderation or uh data entry or uh coding that kind of stuff um could be understood as care work and and systematically undervalued like other forms of care work uh which i think is a very uh a very good point um because yeah i mean it's so true like care work is massively massively undervalued like any pretty much any industry you look at it is yeah absolutely um yeah this this whole last bit is is a lot of it's a lot of proposals for ways things could go better right like um could uh protocolize the walled gardens you know kind of break them down that way um could treat you know computing resources as public kind of uh like like the equivalent of um public broadcasting you know and maybe it could be rooted in libraries you know there's a there's a big server farm in every library and free access and you know it, it, it kind of just it goes on through these um these possible ways things could be improved um yes um but the ultimate problem that we sort of run into with this i think is that because the orientation is so much towards the state and there's no indication in like most places that the state is going to be in a position to do any of these things. It's kind of like a weird artifact of Corbynism and of uh, Sandersism. Um, like it's, it's, it's not to say that like their politics are purely statist or purely social democratic, but there is generally that sort of thrust to it. Um, and so it's kind of like, yeah, these are cool ideas that we could try out if we were in a better position of power versus like relative to the state. But right now we can't use them for anything. Uh, so like maybe it's a matter of like, municipal government struggles to like get your library to provide some more services but you know it's 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 not like super actionable at the moment as far as i can tell like it's going to depend on the country of course but yeah with the way things are right now it's it's quite quite limited it, it's it's hard to see how this would play out yeah because like um I kind of think that, like, a lot of leftists or, like, you know, social democratic sort of leftists kind of see, I don't know, they almost see the state in this kind of Schmidtian kind of terms of, like, it's it's the it's the big agent that can do anything. And if you want something done, you go to the state, you go through the state to do it. It's, it's this kind of magical place where agency and volition 
you know, comes alive. And I, I think that's just not the case, right? Like, I mean, you look around at, like, look, look at how fucking badly all states all over the world dealt with, like, the COVID crisis. I think, like, the state is where it's the elephant's graveyard where change goes to die. Like, it's not a capable actor, actually. It's like, and I, th- I think these these, sta- these nation-state systems become more and more denatured over time and seem to... I mean, the the United States government can't get fucking anything done these days. Like, what what makes anyone think they're going to fucking re- reform libraries, you know? Um, it's, it's the elephant's graveyard where stuff goes to die. It's not the place you go to get things done. Yeah, I mean, I think with the, the, the pandemic, like, there was... It definitely showed how, like, the gr- degree of coordination that the state has available to it is required. But it didn't suggest that, like the state was very good at making use of that you know like it was like yeah like you definitely need to be more coordinated than the like um u.s sort of like everything is federalized devil take the hindmost um approach right of just like i don't know y'all figure it out we don't care anymore um but yeah, a lot of the responses were really clumsy and and ineffective or compromised by, like, business interests putting tons of pressure on the government. Like, it, it was – wasn't – definitely wasn't a slam dunk in favor of the state, even though it pointed to the need for wide-scale coordination beyond just, like, personal or neighborhood-level stuff, Right. Well, yeah, it, it certainly points to the necessity, and I think this is the thing that, like, we 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 carry in our hearts this desire for like social coordination, and then imagine that the state could provide it. But like, if, I think if if you look honestly at how these things perform and have performed more recently, there are machines that are flooded with entropy and have less and less capability over time, and can't seem to get fucking anything done. Like, even the most basic stuff can't get done. And that seems to be true across the board. Like it, any any nation state you can name seems to have this problem by now, um, and so the desire is there, you know. But like, I think I think this is it's kind of like us, um, oh, like as as leftists, we kind of have like um, it's like imprinting. You you know that horrible experiment that was done with like um, like a baby monkey where they like took away its mother and then they gave it like a straw. They, they gave it a straw doll. Right, they gave it a straw doll that kind of looked like a mother, and it, it just latched onto it and basically acted as if the straw doll was its mother, even though functionally it was not in any fucking way a mother, right? But the problem was, the baby monkey had a mother-shaped hole in its heart, and the doll vaguely, almost kind of resembled something that could fill that hole, and so it did. And it's it's a it's a functional imprinting thing. And I think as, as leftists, like... You know, we're 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 people who care, right? We we have we have this like ethical or moral imperative to like try and make a better world. And I think we have a care-shaped hole in our hearts that makes us imprint on the state as this the state is the straw doll here that is non-functional. Like it it won't provide the things we want. But we have a hole in our hearts that makes us think it does. And I think that's what's going on in a lot of these cases, that like the desire is certainly there. And like, yeah, the COVID crisis tells us like we fucking need social coordination but i, I don't know my I, my my instincts just tell me that's that's not what you're going to get out of the nation state like that's that's not a machine that does that it's it's a straw doll it's not your mother you know yeah yeah i think um the the point about sort of like 
these hub institutions and so on uh, and the value that they can have, I think is well taken. Um, and building those up to whatever extent is possible uh, to provide an alternative um, is a good idea. But like as Turnoff describes, like the ISPs and big tech firms do fight these things like one by one. They try to like whack-a-mole crush them and create the um, create the regulatory environment that will like take all the oxygen out of the room for them. Um, so like it's you can kind of get under the radar to some degree with them, or maybe you have like a sympathetic administration, like with Biden, where it's kind of like, yeah, it seems like a good idea, I guess, uh, where it's, you're not going to be actively attacked by the state in the way that, that say like Trump might've done. Um, but yeah, like, uh, we need, we need coordination. <laughs> we need coordination. And, it's like, I can see how these hub institutions can provide that at the local level, but then what, how do we coordinate across those? That's, that's still the big question. Um, well, it, it needs a, it needs a social movement and social force that would, you know, if, if you have that kind of force on your side, it's like the problem of the general strike. Like if, if you're, if you have a social force that can do that kind of strike, why not just take over the fucking world? You know, like just, just, just go do the thing, you know? So like if, if you have the kind of social force that could actually make anchor institutions work, you've got the kind of social force that could just dismantle the fucking government immediately. You know, that's, that's the kind of bar you'd be trying to reach there, you know? Yeah. And I think like, um, in the case of like the internet, like you're never really going to get a situation in the U.S. where the internet, like people could hate the ISPs more. Like, <laughs> they're, like they're so widely hated. Like there is like you kind of have hit the ceiling in terms of dissatisfaction. So, like theoretically there should be some basis for coordination there but you're just up against a ton of money uh and that's that's the, the eternal problem uh and like yeah maybe you can make alliances with the big tech firms to some degree you can make alliances with the democrats to some degree but like ultimately they don't give a shit about you so um yeah yeah, yeah, like, I guess you just have to, like, fight the local fight and try to fight the regular re regulatory fight whenever it's possible. Yeah, and, like, the author does call for, like, you know, org organization from below and, like, just gestures to revolution, basically. But, like, I, I it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard for me to square, like, kind of a revolutionary upsurge from below with also, like, asking the state to give grants to you know, libraries and stuff like it's, yeah. I mean, it's the, the classic problem of like sort of the, uh, like Richard Wolf program for socialism in America. Right. Um, like we'll, we'll, we'll build socialism on co-ops that are funded by the state. Um, 
Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't seem very likely to me. <laughs> We're back in LaSalle Town, you know. It's um... oh, it's a hundred percent LaSalle Town, but it's 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 like yeah, based on what precedent would you ever think that would happen? Where it's like it's not just a little bit of anti competition. It's like we're gonna undermine the entire capitalist economy. <laughs> yeah, right. Like it's it's the 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 audacity of the plan here is is remarkable, but like it's um. If you're challenging the whole contemporary capitalist economy at this level, you're fucking challenging it, like, outright. It's it's not just the internet part of it you're challenging. Um, and for the listeners who haven't followed us on this LaSalle thing that we keep referring to, uh, Ferdinand LaSalle was a, um, a, a kind of contemporary of Karl Marx who, um, his, his version of socialism was this weird thing where, like, Oh, we're, we're, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Bismarck to uh, you know team up with the workers to do socialism to like take down the capitalists or some fucking crazy shit like that. But it's yeah, work with the crown against the capitalists uh, was kind of the agenda, and he was the founder of the SPD, the 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 German Social Democratic Party. Um, so very very important figure, basically the figure that like won out in terms of what official marxism became um yeah uh and 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 marx had critiques of him in the critique of the gotha program but he like suppressed his own critiques in the name of party unity so uh like even his disagreements with lasalle were were uh were not well known until quite a bit later yeah, um, so the, the the thing that is known as Marxism is more accurately called Lasallianism, really. Um, yeah, and and it that applies like equally sort of like spinoffs like you know um, uh, social democracy um, uh, is is very Lasallian. Basically, whenever you you see the 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 state as like your big your big friend who's going to come beat up the bully. Um, that is, that is basically the Lasallian program. <laughs> if that's your strategy, that's, that's Lasallianism. <laughs> and, and it is like a gradualist thing as well and that kind of thing. But really, it's about identifying socialism with the state, which is a thing like prior to Lasalle was generally not, uh, popular among socialists. Um, and, 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 and sort of becomes popular with the SPD and the uh, party institutionalization of, of socialism and Marxism in the, the later 19th century. Yeah, LaSalle was the, the monkey who uh, thought the straw doll was her mom, you know? <laughs> it's fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bismarck is my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Just imprinted on this fucking thing. Uh, anyway, the conclusion, conclusion is titled Future Nostalgia, um, in which, um, yeah, Tarnoff kind of kind of takes down some of these, like, nostalgic notions of the internet as, like, oh, you know, there, there was an early internet which was great, and then all the fucking plebs came along, um, and stuff. Like, no, that, that, that was all horrible and exclusionary, and, but he does kind of, um, you know, kind of, it, it takes on, like, some, some nostalgia is useful, basically, like that. Uh, if we're looking back in order to look forward, that's, that's quite good, so, like, yeah, he uh, he 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 basically does the the poetry of the past thing that Marx criticizes in the in, in the eighteenth uh, Brumaire, you know, saying like, well, you know, the French Revolution had to dress up like Romans to do their thing, but what does it look like to 
to have a, a, a revolution based on the poetry of the future and, and turn us kind of saying like, well, you need a little bit of past looking nostalgia as well. Uh, at the very least, um, is, is what he's saying. Yeah. The historical example he leans on is that of the Luddites, who were rebelling against the new way of being and the new way of working with an eye towards... Like, they, they, had, they had personal experience of having not lived that way, you know. So they were able to look, look backwards to say, hey, this sucks, um, and maybe in the future things could be better. Um, so nostalgia can be good if it leads to inspiration, um, but is a, a reactionary trap if it doesn't. The the problem is where, like, I mean, ideally you want to have, like, you know, creative imagination that is creating the poetry of the future. But if you're going to engage in nostalgia, like, you don't want to replicate perceived solutions from the past just because you conceive of the past as being more desirable. So I think a lot about, like, the... The sort of like, um, we'll engineer our way out of the problem uh, responses that you get uh, among the like uh, open source crowd and that kind of thing. Uh, where it's like, you know, because there was like hacker freedom in the early internet, hacker freedom is powerful and a potential solution to the problem that we are experiencing. And we are motivated by our nostalgia to do it. There's quite a, there's a nice line here where it's like um, movements are made of both create creativity and coercion. So like I mean, Tarnoff is saying that like that there needs to be some sort of movement that is able to coerce these things into into being. But um, I mean, we've we've been over a lot of that. Um, and he, he kind of finishes up on a like a wrap up of the um, of the book like that. Uh, you know, the, the book has been laying out the story of this privatization and understanding how privatization made the modern internet is essential for any movement that seeks to remake it because you just you have to know your enemy. Um, you have to know that the enemy, the enemy is privatization slash capital. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically capital. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, like privatization is sort of the dynamic that unfolded from the beginning of the internet to the present, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably not the most significant one. It's, it's, like, you know, it's like earlier in the book, he talks about, like, uh, formal versus real subsumption, where, like, formal is you take a non-capitalist labor process and put it under capitalist ownership. Um, and then real subsumption is where the, 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 the labor process is actually um, materially and, and structurally changed to be amenable to capital. Um, and, and it's kind of more the... The subsumption process, the like creation of these ideas of platforms, the ideas of 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 uh, data uh, exploitation, of uh, of of creating these like ways to simultaneously like atomize and coordinate the labor process. Um, that kind of stuff is really the useful thing that we're learning here from this history, more so than. Uh, privatization sucks, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I, th I think I think that's kind of what I, what I take away at least in terms of the the key value. Yeah, I'm in agreement. Um, I think all that stuff is really interesting and really good to bring to light. Um, and it's the, the the word privatization just doesn't really capture all of that. Actually, like there's a lot of stuff going on there that's like I don't know, not really. It's it's not captured by that. Um, yeah. 
yeah, and it's sort of like post post privatization developments that are that make that make it like way more obnoxious and and anti human. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it, it, that that's a good way of putting it, right? Like it's once you've arrived in full capitalism, what happens next is the the kind of interesting development. Um, whereas, uh, yeah, privatization is a sort of understood thing. But yeah, like I mean, uh, who, who would have predicted algorithmic algorithmic management and the particular perversities of the human cloud just based on the process of privatizing something? You know, it's it's all there's a lot of weird shit that falls out. Yeah, like kind of wiener, but also kind of not. You know, like he was—he he definitely had an inkling of where this might be going. Um, yeah, um, but it is good history of all those elements. Um, I think it's—it's a—it's—it's it's definitely worth a read. Um, and yeah, I—I I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, yeah, yeah, um, and I would like probably if i was say teaching a course on this subject like you know history of communication like i used to teach or whatever i would probably assign this book as like a you know uh first year primer on the subject um it's it's worth reading um if you are uh looking for a sort of um uh to the point history that isn't going to get too bogged down in uh minutia yeah exactly it's a it's a breezy read you know it's um it is it is not a difficult read at all um yeah i don't know do we have anything else to say before we wrap up on that no i don't think so i think uh yeah it's uh um i i guess i'm glad that we have addressed a like proper this is the history of the internet book um, at this point, uh, given that we've kind of like done articles or videos or whatever, but never just like a history of the internet. Um, and then yeah, now we've covered it. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I it was, I was kind of surprised it, it took us this long to do this, but um, it's always been kind of ambient knowledge on the show, I guess. And, and the other ones that are out there are, maybe not maybe not quite as good for what we are doing here so yeah i appreciate it from that angle for sure um yeah cool uh thanks listeners for coming along with us on this one as always um while you wait for the next episode you can catch us on twitter at giunitpod we're on the internet at generalintellectunit.net um uh, I was going to try to make some joke about the content of the book relating to the internet, but whatever, it got away from me. Um, <laughs> and we're, yeah, if you haven't subscribed yet, we're on all the podcast apps, so subscribe and you know download some other episodes. If you'd like to get access to our community Discord, where we talk, chat about this kind of stuff with the community, um, you can go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit, give us a couple of bucks a month and you'll get access, and you'll help to support the show, uh, help to pay for books, all that kind of good stuff. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. So if you go to emancipation.network and check out that website, you'll get links to all the other shows, um, such as Jumpsuit Utopia, Swampside Chats, um, Mortal Science, and From Alpha to Omega. They're all they're all fantastic. They're all slightly different, and I don't know, but they're they're all similar. I guess we're all, we have similar vibes, you know. Yes, uh, we we still have that forthcoming book on. Uh... Uh, communist planning from Tom. So 
that should be an interesting uh, overlap with what we do here on the show uh, once it comes out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I kind of we need to catch up with them and see when that's happening. Um, we'll we'll get them on to talk about it. Um, yeah, that'll be good fun. Yeah, and uh, um, yeah, I think we will probably do a little bit more uh i've had like requests from listeners to sort of do a little bit more like fiction or something uh uh more narrative oriented uh so hopefully we'll get to do a little bit of that in the uh in the winter here yeah Ooh, i've got i've got one to propose for you there i might edit, edit this out um um william gibson's the peripheral have you read that? Oh, I haven't read it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. It's really fucking good. Um, we should maybe do that because there, there's actually an, an Amazon show coming out, an adaptation coming out in the next couple of months. So if we read the book, we could... Yeah, fuck it. Let's do that. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good novel. It's been a long time since I've read some William Gibson, so... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, that, is a, that is a really good novel. Yeah, let's, let's do that next. Um, so if you're listening to this, um, maybe you might get a chance to um, read that novel first before before we get to it um, in a month's time. Yeah, fun. That'll be good. Nice, uh, nice breezy change of pace. Um, it's also it's been years since I read it, so um, I remember it being very good. But um, let's let's see how it holds up. <laughs> let's see how it holds up. Yeah. Fun. Um, well, yeah. If that's everything, uh, thanks again, listeners, and we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.